The reading is Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. That's page 969 in the Church Bible. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matter quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may, may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. More often than not, when the preacher gets up, he says, I'm just going to open in prayer. I'm going to pause that. We will pray, but not quite at this moment. Um, I'm very grateful to Stephen for um, pointing two things out very helpfully um, last Sunday evening, which um, form the background to um, everything uh, that, that is being said here. Um, Stephen pointed out to us that the Pharisees were really obsessed with quoting one another uh, and quoting other authorities and so on, uh, and that Jesus actually staggers everybody by just saying, I'm telling you this. It's me that's kind of speaking. His authoritative teaching um, comes out very, very strongly. You've heard it said uh, to those of old and the Pharisees at this point, it was, oh yes, Rabbi Moshe has an interesting thing to say here about the difference between murder and, and, and on and on they would have gone um, until they said, noticed that Jesus said, but I say to you, he's assuming that he has the authority. Um, some scholars draw between Jesus delivering this sermon and Moses bringing the law on Mount Sinai, both with um, incredible authority. But what Jesus is also doing, oh, the wrong way around, I never get this thing right, his authoritative teaching, but he's actually digging down into the actual intent of the law he said, as Stephen pointed out, um, he's not come to destroy the law, um, he's come to fulfill the law, uh, and he's come actually to expose what the law was always intending to say. He begins with a crime um, that the natural conscience instinctively condemns. Um, none of us would for a moment condone murder. And he shows us that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, and those like them actually destroy the meaning of the Mosaic law by limiting it to the physical realm, that God had always intended it to be much, much deeper than this, so that if there was no actual killing, in their eyes, the commandment hadn't been broken. Didn't matter how angry you were, didn't matter even if you, if you planned a murder, um, if you failed to carry it out, that was okay. You were on the right side of God, uh, and Jesus is going to just blow that right out of the water. In his work, Stride Towards Freedom, 
Martin Luther King admonished his fellow um, civil rights uh, advocates in this way. He says, avoid not only violence of deed, but violence of spirit. Uh, and he actually commented um, on this section um, from the Beatitudes and said, to be angry with one's brother brings one into judgment. What Jesus does is to expose sin's family relationships. If you like comfortable sermons, if you like to leave church with a warm and fuzzy feeling, can I suggest you leave now? Because you, me, and the Pharisees are about to be out of our comfort zone, seriously out of our comfort zone. Uh, and this is the point where I want to pause and pray. Heavenly Father, I, I want to pray for me as I speak, that I might in no way soften, or on the other hand, uh, just exaggerate what our Savior says. Uh, and for each of us, including me, listening, have hearts that are open enough to understand the, the depth of what it is that our Savior is saying to us in these passages and in the ones that will follow in the weeks to come. Lord, we're out of our comfort zone here. Don't comfort us until we've acknowledged the truth of your word and sought your grace and help to amend our lives accordingly. Amen. In the whole section from 21 to 48, um, Jesus gives six examples of the, the greater righteousness um, that, or the deeper righteousness that he says is essential if we're to enter into the kingdom of God. He refers to murder, to adultery. Uh, he has something to say about divorce, about oaths, about revenge, and about love. Uh, and in each case, he rejects the scribal traditions and reaffirms the authority of the Old Testament principle and draws out the, the inevitable implications from it. So our passage um, deals with murder, but actually it is more about anger and the things that belong to anger because the Lord knows none of us are going to quibble with him about murder. None of us are going to stand up in a debate and, and kind of argue that murder is okay. What we might consider the serious sins, murder, adultery, and so on as a list, are in reality simply the children of what we foolishly treat as unimportant sins. There's a family relationship here. Um, anger gives birth eventually sometimes to murder. He applies his teaching. In verse 22, the you is plural. He's uh, looking back to Matthew 5.1, I think, uh, and uh, it's, it's a debate there as to whether he's talking to his disciples. 
I don't think anybody thinks that he's only talking to the 12. It's either the, the broader group of disciples, or personally, I think more likely, the crowd as well. They're all listening in to this, um, th this kind of sermon. And the you in verse 22 is plural. But when you come down to the rest of the passage, the you is singular. So Jesus is saying, look, you listen to what I'm saying. But then he's coming and saying, right now, you, 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 do something about it. It becomes intensely personal. So what is the anger um, that Jesus is talking about? The, the Greek word is orgizo. Um, and this is outrageous, really. It always makes me think of an English word. It's onomatopoeia, you know, two words that sound like each other. Um, but I don't think you're supposed to use one word from one language and another from another. Um, that's a little bit naughty, but it's what I'm going to do because it always reminds me of the word ogre. Orgizo, ogre. No, no etymological connection between the two at all. Um, but an ogre... I think is, is not a bad kind of picture because uh, an ogre is an angry, ugly-looking person. Uh, and where I think the challenge to this comes is that probably all of us, and this is where our comfort zone starts rattling, um, I would suspect, I know I can certainly say I have been in things like church members' meetings when ogres have been present when there's been unpleasant, angry words spoken, and we've got to take seriously um, what Jesus is saying about that, that that is actually the child that might produce murder. Now, I've never been in a members' meeting or, or, or a gathering of Christians where one of them's got up and killed the other, um, but if we're going to make that distinction, well, that's okay, as long as it's stopped short because what the rest of the passage is going to say to us is that there are a whole pile of things short of murder that the Lord nevertheless regards as being ogreish, ugly, and violent, and totally unacceptable. There are quite a number of um, passages where um, it's used in, in Matthew's gospel. Um, it's used in chapter 18 and verse 34, in anger. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. This was the unforgiving servant. In his anger, the master, who obviously in that, in that story stands for God, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt, which he never could. Or, or Matthew 22 and verse 7, the king was angry. This is when his wedding invitations are slighted and his messengers are, are set upon. The king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burned their city. Now, in both of those occasions, they come into the kind of sole exception um, that you find in Ephesians 4, 6, be angry and don't sin. Th those were justifiable occasions, but Normally, the occasions that we're thinking about are not justifiable. This isn't righteous anger that's consuming us. It's a selfish anger. It's used in the rest of the New Testament. The elder brother, and this is closer to home, isn't it, in the parable of the prodigal son, 
You remember the story, the prodigal goes off, he wastes all his father's money, uh, and then he comes back and his father throws a feast for him, and the brother comes home and goes, yeah, what's going on? What's, what's all the fuss about? Well, you know, what, 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 what's the buzz? What are all the family lights on for? Uh, and the father, full of joy, says, oh, your brother's come home. And the older brother is angry, and he refuses to go into the party. Why? Because he feels slighted. He feels hurt. He doesn't want his younger brother to be welcomed back in. He wants to snatch that ring off his finger, take those shoes from off his feet, and send him back where he's come from. He's angry about it all. The father isn't. The father is gracious and loving and merciful. In Revelation 11, 18, we read this, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. For rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The phrase there, the nations raged. It says the nations were angry. Uh, and you remember the, the setting of the book of Revelation? The, the church is being persecuted. John himself is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, and the, the great cosmic battle between the lamb and satan is being played out in front of our eyes and satan is the one who is angry revelation 12 17 the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of god and hold to the testimony of jesus as he stood on the sand by the sea there is an, an anger that is sinful. There is an anger that is selfish. There is an anger that, that is all to do with me and nothing to do with the goodness and the glory of God. What about the causes of anger? Well, in Exodus, sorry, Genesis 4, we find the first outbreak of anger that does actually end in the first murder. We're told Eve bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the first fruit of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord regarded had regard rather for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. His brother has been approved by God. He has been rejected. God has explained to him what's, what's wrong. Um, he's warned him about the, the dangers that he faces, but, but that anger festers. It becomes like a cancer in Cain's heart, and eventually, he kills his brother. But that kind of false anger can be found amongst much more godly people. What about Jonah as an example? Jonah really with good reason, I think, does not like the Ninevites. And he does not want the Ninevites in any sense or the other to be pardoned um, or, or, or saved by God. Uh, and so his gospel preaching is simply condemnation. Yet 40 days and you're all going to die. But they don't die. 
because they repent and they, they put on sackcloth and ashes and led by the king, they, they, they humble themselves before God and God who is God has mercy on them. And what's Jonah's reaction? The prophet, the man of God, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And you get that lovely little last chapter, don't you, where he goes and sulks underneath the, 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 the bush that kind of grows up, the plant that grows up. Uh, and then God sort of sends a worm and destroys the plant. And, and, and then God says to me, you know, are, 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 you, are you sad because the plant's died? And Jonah goes, I'm extremely sad and extremely angry about it. Uh, and God said, what about all these people? Jonah's anger is a wrong kind of anger. Sometimes it's actually the truth, which I guess it was um, in the case of Cain and in the case of, of Jonah, really, but sometimes it's just plainly the truth that makes people angry. 2 Chronicles 16, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with who? With the messenger, with the seer, Tanani in this case, and put him in the stocks in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this, and Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. There's a king, he disobeys God, and here comes this, this messenger of God, and we all know the expression, don't we? Please don't shoot the messenger, because the last thing a messenger wants to do is to bring bad news. Hanani brings bad news, and he ends up in the stocks. It's an anger that is wrong. But it also has its first cousins. Jesus speaks of two things. He says, whoever says raka to his brother. John Stott says, to call someone raka was an Aramaic swear word for blockhead or idiot. It could lead to a hearing before the town council. No, says Jesus, that attitude of arrogantly dismissing one of God's creatures as an idiot will face the judgment of God. I know thinking back to my own school days, I'm sure it's not like that these days. I'm sure teachers have learned their lesson. But I can remember teachers absolutely humiliating a child and saying, you know, how can you be so stupid, boy? Are you a total idiot? You know, haven't you listened to anything I've been saying to you? Uh, and you can watch this poor soul shrinking under this tirade of, of, of anger. Jesus says, if you behave like that, even in the world of his day, you could be dragged off to the town council, uh, and that might end up with you being fined, or it might end up with you being humiliated because you were stripped and beaten with rods in front of all the townspeople. It's more, it's contempt for a human being. It's calling somebody stupid. The Greek for fool, which is the, the next thing, example Jesus uses, is the Greek word 
more, and here there is a link, because from that we get the word moron. And that again is an insulting word, isn't it? It expresses contempt for somebody. Um, equally, it can mean not just a moron in the sense that we use it, but a scoundrel. Now, how many of us would just consider that kind of thing as being playground language? It's not very pleasant. It's not the sort of thing we want children to be doing, but... Now, Jesus is saying it is something far, far different to that. It's a well-trodden road, isn't it, that leads from despising other people, treating them as if they are insignificant, unimportant, and that flowing out into something more. Alexander the Great was... Uh, a very energetic, versatile, intelligent man. He was probably um, the best general um, there ever has been. Uh, and although, generally speaking, he was of a, a mild and a, and a placid nature, there were occasions when he would allow his anger to flare. On one of those occasions, he overheard one of his dear childhood friends. He'd been brought up with this man, one of his generals, um, they, they, they were boy friends, they'd trained together, they'd played together, and now they'd conquered the world together. And he overheard this man who was drunk make a handful of disparaging comments about himself, about Alexander. And in a, a kind of Saul-like moment, he grabbed a spear and he hurled it straight at his friend. And his aim was too good. He pierced him and he killed him. And he was overwhelmed with deep remorse. He was overcome with guilt. So much so that he attempted to take his own life with the same spear. But was stopped by his men. And for days he lay sick, calling for his friend and chiding himself as a murderer. It's interesting that Alexander could conquer most of the world, but he couldn't conquer his own pride, which gave rise to his own anger, which gave rise to murder, which, of course, being the king, he got away with, or at least got away without any sanction for it. Murder is, is of course, just the last step, isn't it? It's the, the physical application of the anger that motivates it and, and maybe it is a, a rising thing the first comes the insult um, then maybe one person takes offense there, there's a perception of being cheated or whatever uh, and anger mixes with bitterness hatred fear a whole complex series of emotions and they lead in the end to murder this contemptuous word raka this angry way of speaking about people as if they were insignificant, unimportant, is sadly too common, isn't it? And it's an epidemic in our own world. You just wonder how Jesus, if he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount today, would apply it in terms of things like social media where people can be bullied to the point of committing suicide because of 
the, the anger that's directed. Nobody hits them. Nobody, nobody stabs them. Nobody shoots them. But they perhaps eventually kill themselves because they can't take that humility any longer. So what does Jesus say we need to do? The first thing is he says, look, if you find that in your heart, and the thing is, of course, it doesn't need to be expressed, does it? You can have all those feelings. You can sit and smile at somebody while in your heart you're thinking, you absolute idiot, you mindless moron. Um, we can think it without even expressing it. But Jesus is taking it not just to the level of murder, not just to the level of what we say, but to the level of what we think. And that's, that's a much less comfortable place for us to be, isn't it? For, for Jesus to be rooting around in our minds and in our motives and, and exposing what is right and what is wrong. The Pharisees would certainly agree with Jesus that murder is wrong. And they would complacently boast that they've never murdered anybody. We can do the same. But I wonder how we stand in terms of anger and in terms of demeaning views and thoughts and maybe words concerning other people. Well, Jesus says two things. The first, he says, look, in, 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 the, in the physical world, if, if you've said something um, and you might be hauled off to court for doing it, um, then the, what you really need to do is to get it sorted straight away. So you would go to somebody, wouldn't you, and say, look, look, I I'm very sorry. Um, don't sue me for slander, please. I'll withdraw what I said. That would be the common sense thing to do. Jesus brings it up a notch because he says, look, this must become priority to you. Because if you find yourself on the way to the temple and you've got your lamb um, or your money to buy your lamb to sacrifice in the temple, or you've got your gifts, or whatever it is, uh, and you're on your way, uh, and the Holy Spirit convicts you that, that this relative of murder is actually living in your own heart, Jesus says, leave your gift where it is. Go straight away and, and get yourself right. Reconcile yourself with the person that you've wronged. Uh, and it may be that if we really understand what Jesus is saying in these things, then we'll need to do some sorting. We'll need to go to some people and say, look, I'm sorry. And you say, but, but you've never said anything about me. No, but I thought it. I thought it. Because that's the level to which Jesus is taking it. It's uncomfortable enough already, isn't it? But Jesus says, if you do use these kind of words... You're in danger of hell fire. The, the actual word that's used there is, is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna, there's a little bit of a map there. If you're looking on the extreme, my, my extreme right, your extreme left, I suppose, you can just see the valley that's going along the side of, of Jerusalem on the map. That's the Valley of Hinnom. The, the picture on the other side um, is of, uh, it's a depiction of Moloch, one of the, the gods uh, that they got involved with. Let me read you a couple of scriptures quickly. 
2 Chronicles 21. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. To Chronicles 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. For he rebuilt the places his father Hezekiah had knocked down, and erected altars to the Baals, and made Ashereth, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of Hinnom. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. So vile were the things that they did uh, as they worshipped this, this Baal, this, this false god Molech. Um, the, the best explanation is, is that Moloch was a statue with hands that were laid out like that. Uh, and in the, the belly of, of the, the image was a, a fire that just burned. Uh, and the people would come and put their own children on the hands of Moloch. And the priests behind would pull their ropes and the hands would go up and the child living would bowl down into the fire. And God said, that's it, that's it, enough. Uh, and firstly to Israel and then to Judah, these were some of the major reasons that the people fell. But 2 Kings 23.10 is, is, is relevant as well. And he defiled Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Himon, so that no one might burn his son or daughter in an offering to Molech. Jeremiah, that's Josiah. Uh, and what Josiah did was he turned the valley into the place that the, the Jews from Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, would bring their refuse. It, it, was, their, it was their dumping ground. But they would bring the, the carcasses of dead animals and so on. Uh, and in order to, to kind of consume this, they, they just had fires that, that just burned continuously. Uh, and so it became the image that Jesus used when he speaks of hellfire, Gehenna. To every Jew, it would be abhorrent. To every Jew, it would bring up all of these images of, of pagan worship at its very, very worst. And the way in which God has turned it now into a ever, the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Jesus says, if we speak disparagingly of other people, we're in danger of hellfire. Can you see what I'm trying to say? We either need to say, oh, well, Jesus is using picture language, isn't he? He doesn't really mean it. In which case, why on earth did he say it? Or 
it throws a spotlight on our own lives and our own hearts, which is exceedingly uncomfortable. The Heidelberg Confession of 1563, question 105, I'm sure you all know it. Um, you can repeat it with me. What does God require in the sixth commandment? And the answer, that neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire for revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. They link the two together. God never wanted people merely to obey the rules. He wants them to be holy as he is holy. And that's where Stephen helpfully took us last week. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus lays out some principles for us. Recognize that anger of any description other than truly righteous anger, which is more rare I think, than we would credit, is in and of itself a sin. Recognize that it's a hindrance to true worship, and it must be sorted out before we bring our gifts to God. So if we were having communion at the end of this evening service rather than this morning service, I imagine that Nathan or whoever was leading the communion service would say, look, if there's anything you need to put right, put it right now. Don't come to the Lord's table until you have done. Do everything you can to sort out the issue. Is it really that serious? If we're going to take Jesus seriously, I think we have to say, yes, it is that serious. Charles Spurgeon, I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon said this what a sweeping law is this my conscience might have been easy as to the command thou shalt not kill but if anger without just cause be murder how shall i answer for it deliver me O god from blood guiltness O thou god of my salvation Spurgeon preaching on this passage was himself deeply convicted by the passage and felt that the last thing he should say is, Lord God, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strip away anything that's been said tonight that's just mere emotionalism, exaggeration. But Lord, strike home anything that is true to your word and true to the heart of what Jesus was saying to us, his people, because we still are mindful of the closing words last Sunday night except our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us not to deal with 
the obvious, but to deal with the deep in our own lives. For your name's sake. Amen.